Living with Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes Victoria with Jack Fitzpatrick. Hello and welcome to Living Well with Diabetes, the official podcast of Diabetes Victoria. This is a great forum for those of us impacted by diabetes, whether it be directly or indirectly, to discuss ideas, share stories and build our diabetes community. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, ex-Melbourne and Hawthorne AFL player and current Diabetes Victoria ambassador. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nation, where we are speaking from today, as well as all the lands across Australia. I pay my respects to all elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening in. I'm so fortunate to be joined by today's guest who has lived a remarkable life, both personally, professionally and in the diabetes world. Personally and professionally, he's included roles as Chairman of Cricket Australia, President of the International Cricket Council, and Deputy Chairman of the Bank of Melbourne. Not to mention, he's the Chairman of his family-run business, Brian Johnson, for the last odd years. He's also a Director of the Diabetes Australian Research Trust and Director at Diabetes Victoria. I'm talking about Malcolm Gray, and Malcolm, it's so great to have you on the podcast. As we speak, um, and before we even delve into the history of, of the remarkable career that you've had thus far, it looks like you're the director and chairman of about eight billion different places, mate. How do you manage to keep it all uh, uh, keep it all up? Oh, Jack, well, it's nice you to say things like that, but no, these days uh, my workload is nothing like it used to be. Uh, these days I'm a bit of a feather duster, so uh, the workload is, isn't great at all. It's just over the years, I've been lucky in, do, in being able to do a few different things. I'm, I'm sure that you're certainly underselling yourself by saying that your workload's not that heavy and that you've been lucky. I really do want to delve into your career, if that's okay, Malcolm, and what you've done and who you are and everything you've achieved before delving into your work in the diabetes space specifically. So if you don't mind, can we take it all the way back to... Uh, when it all started out for you and, and you know, your first foray into the business world? Oh, yes. Um, I, first, I first went to agricultural college, which was great for me. It taught me one thing. Don't go into agriculture, Malcolm. Um, <laughs> so I, I then then went to Melbourne Uni and did an economics degree. And then nobody would employ me, so in the end I had to join the family firm. That's now 100-odd years old. Um, and uh, which is real estate, and that's been my main occupation all my life. Whereas uh, the other things I, I would do separately from that. Um, but I, I was lucky in that uh, I it was a, our firm is a good firm, and it's been very uh, very fortunate for me. Um, at that stage, my father was head of it, and. He was, he, he was not, I'm not, not saying it, he gave me tremendous opportunity. No, it's a set up agriculture college to economics and real estate. That's certainly uh, certainly a, a bit of a difference. And, and you've been there for now, I believe that's Brian Johnson, but how long, Melbourne? Well, I don't know, 55 years old, something like that. So, in other words, I'm very old, Jack. <laughs> no, that's that's a remarkable stint in itself, and I believe you are the chairman uh, as we speak. Is, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm still chairman. In other words, I just stick my nose into other people's businesses and annoy, and annoy them most of the time. 
<laughs> well, you know, also being the chairman and, and worked on quite a few other boards. And, and this includes, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but you've been the president of the Real Estate Institute of Australia, you've been the chairman of Cricket Australia, you've been the deputy chairman of the Bank of Melbourne, you've been the president of the International Cricket Council. And again, this is all before I start talking about your work in the diabetes space specifically. Yeah, well, yes, that is correct. Yeah, I did do so, those things. So ha- tell me how you, you go you know, working in your family's real estate firm and then I guess sort of climbing your way up there to, um, to yeah, becoming the chairman of, of Cricket Australia way back in 1986 that you started. Is that right? Yeah, Cricket Australia, I was chairman, yeah, 86, yep. Yeah, so tell me how, how that came Well, about. I had, well, yeah, in terms of my interest in cricket, I, I played cricket um, at uh, Melbourne University uh, and got involved in administration there and then in the administration of Cricket Victoria. I was chairman of Cricket Victoria. And just one thing led to another. Um, and I became chairman of Cricket Australia and then later on, 15 years later or whatever it was, I became uh, president of the International Cricket Council. Now, in terms of playing cricket, um, jumping from playing at Melbourne University when I was a student to when I was president of the ICC, I'd be in uh, India or Pakistan, and they'd say to me, and with their heads nodding, um, oh, Mr. Gray, you're a very good cricketer, very, very good cricketer. You were a famous cricketer, were you? Very good cricketer. And I'd (laughs) respond by saying, yes, I was a, I was a very good cricketer. I was captain of the Melbourne University fourth eleven. In other words, my my interest in cricket was greater than my ability to play it. Well, you're still the captain of the team, Malcolm, and it's much more than I've achieved on the cricket field. I am a keen cricketer. Oh yes, Jack. Yeah, you've certainly played in the fourth fourth eighteen. Like hell, what have you what have you done? 157 league games, AFL games. I know. Certainly much better at AFL football than I was at cricket, mate. That's, that's for sure. But running the International Cricket Council, talk to me about that. Um, obviously, a lot is made and probably joked about these days in particular about how essentially um, cricket is run by, by the Indian Cricket Council and, and the Indian team. And how do you respond to, you've got, you know, the world of cricket uh, is the best interest of the world of cricket at mine, but you're probably coming under severe pressure from a lot of people with money in, in the Indian organisation. Yeah, well, I think any international organisation um, is hard to run, it's hard to get achievement, it's a bit like herding cats. Um, uh, the problem I had when I was president of ICC was corruption in cricket, um, mm-hmm. and uh, which was really bad, and that's around the year 2000. Uh, and it was so bad at one stage, I really thought it, it might be the end of cricket. At any rate, with a lot of hard work and by lots of people, including uh, policing people, uh, we, we managed to get on top of it. Certainly, certainly did. Um, and tell me how the work as, as cricket, you know, the president of the International Cricket Council will differ to whether it be being the president of Real Estate Institute of Australia or the deputy chairman of, of the Bank of Melbourne. Uh, and then again, compared to running the family firm. Well, they're, they're all similar, same as um, the diabetes organisations. 
um, or any organisation. They all have their own individual characteristics, but it is much the same of managing people and managing outcomes. Uh, the international field, is, yes, is a, is a bit different because those around you, particularly your fellow board members, are all different. Like uh, on the board back when I was chairman, we had a Pakistani general. Uh, we had um, senior government ministers from different countries. We had uh, the great Wesley Hall, who by that time in his career, he was a minister of religion. So they're all a bit different, and that's that. That, that did take a, a bit of work. I, I can imagine now. You did mention that you know working in the field of diabetes as well, and how that is an interesting factor for you. So now you're a director at Diabetes Australia and a director at the Diabetes Australian Research Trust. Is that correct? No, not quite. I've been for many years a director of Diabetes Victoria. Uh, yeah, and then, which I became, I don't know, in the early 90s, and then two or three years later, yes, I became a director, went onto the board of the Diabetes Research Trust. Yes, okay. So that's nearly, what's that, 30 years, is it almost being a director at Diabetes Victoria? Something like that, yep. So tell me now, you, you said earlier that it, it was a passion. What was it that got you involved in the world of diabetes? Do you have diabetes yourself? Was, is it a loved one, a family member, or a friend, or just a, a passion? Uh, no. Our eldest son um, got diabetes, type 1 diabetes, when he was five, when he was a little tacker, um, yep. and he's now 49, so he's had it for whatever, 44 years. Um, yes. And obviously... Uh, that that started the mine and the family's interest in it. So, from a parent's point of view, and obviously, you know, we're going back forty-five years now, so it is quite a long time. But how was the experience of, of having a son diagnosed with with diabetes? Did, did you know much about diabetes at the time, and, and what did that mean for a change in you know you and, and your family lifestyle? Um, well, um, no, I didn't really know anything about diabetes, um, and so you, you did, do, when your kid get, goes down, admitted to hospital, you, you start to get on a pretty quick uh, learning curve, um, uh, and it's all rather frightening and worrying. Um, and in terms of the family's lifestyle, uh, yeah, there's a couple of things there. One is. Same as anything in life, there's a silver lining on every cloud and Sam getting diabetes meant there were a couple of silver linings. For me, uh, when he was first admitted to hospital, I went to see him, uh, you know, I went to visit him and I was a smoker, cigarette smoker. And I'd, I was then probably 36 years of age. I'd smoked for 20 years since I was 16, and I was truly addicted to them. Even if I had a bad cold, I'd still smoke a packet a day. Uh, and I never wanted to give them the cigarettes up. I never tried to give the cigarettes up because I don't think I could, and uh, I didn't like getting beaten at anything. And I thought, if I try this, it'll beat me. So I didn't even try but that night when I went to see Sam and I came out of the hospital, I thought to myself, well, if this little fella has to have four injections a day to survive life, I can put up without having cigarettes. And I didn't, that was it. I never had another cigarette in my life. Um, 
And I suppose it was just the emotional connection between father and son. Um, and, of course, another silver lining to the cloud was the fact that as a family, we, over the years, probably ate, ate a better diet than we probably would because of, because of Sam. We had to always, uh, we, we, had, we all ate the same. Um, and uh, that probably meant that we, yeah, did follow a better diet. And back in those days, diets, yeah, there wasn't the emphasis on diet like there is today. Absolutely not. Um, a couple of silver linings, indeed. Now you, you spoke about, um, you know, as as a family, and when he was five years old, he was diagnosed. Um, but you know, however long ago that was, that certainly wasn't the um, the technology that we are fortunate enough to have now. So, what did that mean for you guys in terms of having to dial up those injections? Bank of Melbourne, etc. I spoke 
I was lucky enough to speak with Anna Morsby on a previous podcast who's lived with diabetes for 80 years. She was diagnosed in England during World War II and she's got a remarkable story and, and talks about these changes of technology. But I want to ask you about the different perspective that uh, your son being diagnosed with diabetes and seeing him manage the condition, um, what that had on you and, and if that changed your approach to things like business or or maybe, you know, if things weren't going quite so well, um, did, you, did it make things have a bit more perspective and say, well, okay, hasn't been a great day or, or this isn't going so well, but, you know, there are people out there dealing with it, more significant things than, than this? Um, well, certainly that. And having diabetes is more significant than other things. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible condition which has a huge burden on the person. Um, and you obviously, you, Jack, you certainly know it. In fact, you've been remarkable with a football career and having type 1 diabetes. You know the discipline you've got to have that mm-hmm. to, to think that every morsel of food, every crumb of food and every bit of liquid that goes in your mouth, you have to consciously think about as to mm-hmm. what it's going to do to my blood sugar level. Um, yep. Or will it, well, I'm going to worry about hypos. Uh, and similarly, especially with you as a footballer, um, as a sportsman, you have to constantly worry about how much exercise you're getting, how much sugar you're burning so that the levels are kept. So um, that's a huge burden on a person. Um, and so you're right. Um, when sometimes things aren't going so well in, in a normal person's life, not that you're abnormal, well, you are abnormal because of how, what you've achieved with, with the condition you've got. Um, yeah, yeah, life can be put into a bit better perspective. And on that note, you spoke about the, uh, I guess, for want of a better word, the burden that diabetes can often have on the, the person living with it. But that does also um, extend to the care management team. Now, whether that be partners or parents or siblings or friends or whoever that might be of the person living with diabetes, have you found that? Um, I certainly know whenever I meet someone else who has type 1 diabetes, you, you feel an instant connection with the person um, and you almost feel like you've been best friends because you know what each other's going through even even if you've never met. As a father of someone with diabetes, do you find it similar if you meet other parents or, or family members who have sort of been riding the journey with them? Uh, no, I'm not quite sure of that. Well, I was, again, yet another great bit of luck in my life was my wife, in that the burden, apart from Sam himself, the burden was on her, um, in that she was fantastic. I was rushing around chasing my ego, being a, what I thought was a big shot or whatever, being a, a fool. But it was Neri, Nerida, my wife, that had the burden um, of diabetes. And it's not only the burden of the diabetes and, and, the, and the, the kid or the person with diabetes, you've got to think of the other members of the family too so that, so that things are even between everybody. You can't just put all emphasis on the, on the person with the diabetes. Yes, of course. When you've got siblings and those kinds of things, you don't want them 
feeling left out or, or like he's getting extra care. Going back to the diabetes research, um, as I said, you've been at the Diabetes Australian Research um, since 1995, I believe. It was obviously, you know, Stan's experience and, and, you know, you're obviously having a passion for diabetes and it's got you to be involved. Yeah, uh, it's good. Now, I'm a complete layman and a complete ignorant in regard to the actual research. Um, but a couple of things about the, the research. What Just to explain what the Diabetes Australia Research Trust does, um, it gives out 50 or 60 grants a year to researchers of about $60,000 each. Um, so that's whatever it is, $3 million plus a year. Then in addition to that, there's some sp- bigger and special grants, research grants, done with, with other org- jointly with other organisations. But those smaller grants, the 60, why we keep giving those as compared with saying just giving one researcher three million is to keep the young researchers in the field of diabetes because if they can't get money to, to survive, um, they'll go off to answer or heart or whatever. And also it keeps the, the researchers, the bright brains of our community, um, in Australia, because otherwise they'll go and get a get a job, a research job at an institution overseas. Um, these young researchers, Jack, I don't know whether you've had anything to do with them, but they're quite amazing uh, in that they literally live on the smell of an oily rag. They they don't they don't catch a tram to the the research institute each morning. They ride their bike because they can't afford a tram fare, and yet. Mm-hmm. They're brilliant, whereas, and that's that's life and society. Whereas, on my office in Collins Street, half the time I see young fellows are walking up and down Collins Street and making fortunes, and they're not as bright as, as these young researchers. But then again, you go to a research institution and see the young researchers, and you're, you're struck by how happy they are. They're doing what they want to do, um, yeah. and they're absolutely committed. But the, a lot of the research, one thing about research, sometimes you, you give a grant to a researcher and he works away and it, and it doesn't work. Nothing comes of it. That doesn't mean to say it's a failure. It means what it does do is saves every other research around the world pursuing that particular uh, uh, field. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The fact that some research doesn't come up with the results you're hoping for doesn't mean to say that it really is a failure. Yes. Now, there's a famous quote, I believe. Now, I could be wrong. It might have been Thomas Edison that said, and again, I, I could be wrong here, but something like, I have not failed. I've just found a thousand ways that didn't work. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's perfectly, perfectly correct. It certainly makes sense. And, and on that note, you work with Diabetes Victoria, where you've been there for a similar amount of, amount of time. Um, what is it that you're doing with Diabetes Victoria and, and the work that the organisation um, is doing? Obviously, uh, you've been there for nearly 30 years now. Um, Diabetes Victoria uh, is a wonderful organisation led you, I might say by the board, but really the chief executive, Craig Bennett, uh, is a remarkable individual. He was previously chief executive of of the Peter Mac 
cancer hospital. Um, And the staff there are all committed. And again, it's a not-for-profit, so they're not not highly paid people. They're they're not necessarily bankers and financiers. Uh, And they do an amazing range of uh, programs um, assisting uh, uh, assisting people with diabetes. They also, Diabetes Victoria also gives um, uh, uh, a couple of million dollars a year to research. But apart from that, the staff there run all sorts of programs from camps for the kids. Uh, each year there are camps for kids with diabetes uh, right through to uh, uh, assistance with the, uh, to the elderly. Uh, now that can take all sorts of form of just assistance with a, with a advice or uh, getting people uh, giving out information, educating a huge amount of education about diabetes goes out uh, to the, the members and to the the general public. So it's a complete complete range of activities, all heading towards the assistance uh, of the person with diabetes. You know, I, I can only uh, echo your sentiments there. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be a diabetes, uh, an ambassador for Diabetes Victoria. And, uh, you know, I have the easy job, really. I, I get to talk about all the great things that the team do, but it's, it's the team who does it all, um, the support and, and things like that. But the organisation does with people living who are affected by diabetes is truly remarkable. Just to touch back on the research one last time, and, and you spoke about the need to keep people in Australia research researchers and also keep them in the field of diabetes because as we know there are so many things going on um, unfortunately in the world whether it be cancer or at the moment obviously COVID is such a big thing that people are researching etc there's so much do you think that sometimes and this isn't to, to complain or to or, or to make diabetes sound worse than it is but do you think that at times it is underestimated or underappreciated in the general public about the um, impact it can have on the lives of people that have it. We so many we see so many successful people living with diabetes and managing their conditions and whether they be children, teenagers, adults, seniors, whoever it might be, doing such a great job. But because it might not have that nastiness of day cancer in the general public population, do you think sometimes it can be um, left behind a little bit of the public donor? Uh, absolutely, certainly, I agree with that. Yes, the, the big three health problems are cancer, heart, and diabetes. But diabetes um, isn't as dramatic um, or out in the front as the other two. But yes. Um, what what is not really a known is more than more than forty percent of the beds in the hospitals around Australia, the people are in those beds because of diabetes. Now, if you um, you go and read the card or ask the doctor or the or the family why is he here, you won't necessarily be told it's because of diabetes. He might be there. For amputation reasons, because because uh, that because that has been the amputate need for amputation um, has been caused by diabetes, or he might have heart problems, which started off with a diabetes problem, um, mm-hmm. 
in other words, the the acute problem when you're in hospital is not necessarily your diabetes. It's something that has been caused caused by your diabetes. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and so very very well put. Um, I could talk to you for hours upon hours, um, Malcolm. You've lived a remarkable life, and, and you've got some remarkable experiences. But I do know you're a busy man with uh, a lot of stuff on your plate. Um, before I do let you go, is there any anything you wanted to, to finish on? Anything from a whether it be a, a diabetes research trust perspective or diabetes Victoria? A, a personal note: uh, Is there anything you would like to, to leave the listeners? I'm sure I've enjoyed hearing your story and, and your commitment to. The diabetes, both the research and, and advances in technologies, and also potentially, and fingers crossed, finding a cure. Uh, just well, for the sake of two minutes, tell us about you, Jack. <laughs> you've, had di- you've had diabetes for ten or eleven years. Um, yes, and yes, we all know you're a footballer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you've got normal. Job. How are you coping now? I'm I'm coping okay, thank you, Malcolm. As you said, I was um, yes. Yeah, so Diagnosed in my third year of AFL football, so I spent um, yeah six years with with Melbourne and then two years with Hawthorne before unfortunately retiring with um, with diabetes uh, with concussion issues. I, I had my ninth concussion. The doctors told me that I was to no longer play contact sport. And you said a little bit earlier um, about being competitive and, and having your ego and, and not wanting to lose. Um, you know, talking about your career and. I remember when I was first diagnosed with diabetes that it was, I almost made a promise to myself that, you know, I can, whether I can finish my career and it can be because I'm not quite good enough to make it or because of various other reasons or because teams don't want me. I was okay with that, but it was never, ever going to be because I couldn't manage my diabetes properly. That was the one thing that I promised myself. And, you know, unfortunately it was the concussion, but um, you used the word normal before and I always say normal versus commas, um, you know, the, the other guys who don't have diabetes, I was able to train and play and do all that kind of stuff that, that they were able to do and the stuff that I was able to do beforehand, before my diagnosis. And I guess that's my personal passion for diabetes is trying to showcase to, you know, people, whether they be kids and teenagers or adults, that, you know, no matter what your dreams and goals are, it's, um, I was able to play AFL football after my diagnosis and they can certainly chase their dreams as well because I certainly wasn't, much as I like to talk myself up, Malcolm, I certainly wasn't Buddy Franklin or Chris Judd or Gary Ablett Jr. So, you know, for someone who I think almost, with it being myself and you're not being an absolute superstar, it makes it a bit more realistic. Sometimes we can idolise these superstars of the sport and we look at them and say, oh, no, yes, okay, they might have done that they don't have the same issues I do because that's Buddy Franklin, he's a superstar. But yes, no, I wake up throughout the middle of the night with hypos like everyone else and I'm always dealing with, you know, what am I eating and exercising and all these kinds of things that everyone else living with diabetes has to deal with. And, and we look around the sporting world now and I always go back to sport. I mean, there are so many other people, different industries with diabetes that are doing so well. For example, Tom Brown, as you know, the... The journalist, um, he was my last podcast guest. He's living with type 1 diabetes. There are so many people doing such great stuff with it that I look into the sports world because that's where I've spent most of my life as a player and I'm still an assistant coach at the Western Bulldog AFLW team at the moment. And 
You know, we've got Australian netballers now who are living with diabetes. Sophie Devine was the New Zealand cricket captain. Um, she was living with diabetes. We've got AFL players living with diabetes. We've got, you know, Jack Perkins, who's a, a V8 supercar driver who lives with diabetes. There are so many people who have this condition and are doing it so well and have great stories to share. But, um, you know, I think it does reduce the stigma of it a little bit, but it probably does. All that. That we just spoke about that potentially because you see so many people doing some great stuff with it. Sometimes I think the broader public almost goes with, oh, then it can't be that difficult to live with because these people are doing so well. It almost uh, is a, a catch 22 in some respects. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm a great believer in luck. I've been extraordinarily lucky in life. People, people say yeah, you make your own luck. I think that's complete nonsense. You don't make your own luck. Uh, that's just people trying to praise themselves. Uh, do you, would you agree that you've probably been lucky that you had the determination to do all that? Because I, I, unfortunately there are some people with diabetes that haven't got that di- uh, determination. And yes, diabetes can affect you not just physically but psychologically. And I think I think that's a huge problem we have within diabetes that the uh, and that is the psychological effect it has on on many probably everybody I, I suspect you must get down at some t- sometimes with it oh look I mean you know there's, there's probably three ways to answer that question the first one is psychologically um, the thing with diabetes is I mean I consider myself lucky that when I got diagnosed I was nearly 21 years old I was two weeks before my 21st birthday so Firstly, I mean, I, I admire so much the children and teenagers who have diabetes, Malcolm, because the number one thing every teenager wants to do is to fit in. They want to be part of the group. And again, inverted commas, use that word normal. By definition, living with diabetes, it, you have something that makes you not normal. It makes you stand out. Now, that is really, really difficult. So I consider myself lucky that firstly, I, I didn't have to deal with as a kid and a teenager where... You know, again, fitting in is so important. So I admire the teenage consistent and living with diabetes so much. They're so mature. They're mature to do the things they have to go through, sleep over friends, food at parties, all these kinds of things. Um, you know, trying to fit in at school. It would be really tough. The other thing that I consider myself lucky for, Malcolm, is that I was diagnosed um, as an AFL footballer. Now, from a very broad and simple perspective, we think about what is, what's the best way to live with diabetes effectively. You have a good diet, you get yourself into a good position, you exercise a lot, you keep fit and healthy, and you're very disciplined. By definition, that's what an AFL footballer does. You have to do all those things. So I literally was doing it as my job and my livelihood. So yeah. other than having to start testing my sugars throughout the day, and, and yes, of course, injecting myself when I would have meals, the actual change to my lifestyle wasn't that great because I was lucky enough that you know I would be exercising every single day. I would be eating well my entire life. I was very disciplined. I had a day routine, and I would go to training or, or go to work every day, and there would be a doctor at training. I mean, that's just incredibly lucky. And, and on that note, and probably the final answer to that question, I still think that at the time I was diagnosed, two weeks before my 21st birthday. Now, when I grew up, I had chronic fatigue syndrome, and, and at times throughout my life as a teenager and a child, I was very, very sick to the point 
point where I was literally getting my mum and dad to carry me to the bathroom because I didn't have the energy to do it. I, I still don't think that whilst I was unwell when I was diagnosed, I didn't realise how sick that I was. And if I didn't have a doctor at work to just go and pop my head in his office and go, hey, look, you know, I'd, I'd probably just be in the pit under the weather. I'm quite thirsty. I'm going to the toilet a while. I've lost a bit of weight. As you know, particularly with men, we can, you know, oh, I'll be right. I'll tough it out. A couple of days rest, I'll be fine. I, I don't think I would have seen a doctor um, if I was in, again, for one of, one of the better words, a normal environment. If I was a mm-hmm. student, if I was a tradie, if I was working part-time at McDonald's or whatever it was, I might have thought, yeah, I'll have one or two days off. God knows no. what happened to me because my blood sugars when I went into hospital were 46.7. I mean, how close I was to something terrible happening. Oh, you could have gone, gone for half a century. Yeah. Like, I know, it just, just fell short. But God knows how close I was to, you know, if I was driving a car and, and passed out yeah. or went into a coma or something, I, I don't know what would have happened. So that is another message of mine, particularly to young males, but to anyone is, any question at all, see a doctor. Don't be too yeah, proud. Know. Don't be too stubborn. Don't let your ego get in the way because I don't think I would have seen a doctor at the time of my diagnosis if they weren't at training. So you talk about luck there, and, and I think there's probably... I was going to say, yeah, so, so you're agreeing with me. You can be lucky in life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I obviously didn't want to be diagnosed with diabetes. Yeah, the way yeah. it happened, I think I'm very lucky in the circumstances that were around it. Yeah. No, Malcolm, I'm, again, I, I could catch up to you for another, you know, for the rest of the day, but I do know you've got a lot on and I really appreciate you taking your time out to chat with me today to share not only your remarkable personal career, but also the great work you're doing with diabetes, with both diabetes and research with diabetes, mate. It really is appreciated. That's a pleasure. Tell me, last question, uh, yeah. who do you barrack for now? Well, that's a good one. Um, I grew up barracking for Hawthorne. Um, then I spent six years at Melbourne, but went back to play for Hawthorne. So probably Hawthorne, oh, Hawthorne. but now I'm at the Western Bulldogs AFLW. Um, <laughs> we're you know, going okay at the moment. I do have a soft spot for the doggies as well. Hello. Well, good, uh, yeah, good, well, good luck with the doggies. Thank you very much, mate. Uh, get on, get on the girls. It's, uh, it's a great thing, the AFLW. It's you know raising awareness, getting women involved in sport. It's terrific. I love it. Um, and yeah, the more support we get about the AFLW in general, the better. But no, thank you once again, Malcolm. It's been, it's been a great it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you'd like to contact us, it's very easy. Simply send an email to podcast at diabetesvic.org.au. Or, of course, all the information you'll need is on the website, diabetesvic.org.au.